This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. One month after the atrocious attacks by Hamas terrorists on Israeli citizens, the world is now witness to Israel's predictable and justified military effort to find and neutralize the murderous perpetrators living in the Gaza Strip. The challenge for Israel's attempt to eliminate Hamas, labeled a terrorist organization by the U.S. since 1997, is that their members are embedded amongst the two million Palestinians in a land area only twice the size of Washington, D.C., making the likelihood of collateral deaths of innocent civilians more likely still is Hamas's demonstrated tactic of locating vital assets within civilian institutions such as schools, hospitals, and mosques. While the U.S. has offered clear support for Israel's right to defend itself, there's little consensus on the most prudent ways to support its effort to root out Hamas while also offering compassion to non-combatants trapped by both Hamas and the walls of the Gaza Strip. If the presence of unwilling victims empowers the terrorists and frustrates Israel's effort to eradicate Hamas, could the U.S. help accelerate victory by helping refugees leave the conflict? And how would American institutions ensure that any Palestinians vetted by such a program would not bring their anger towards Israel and hatred of its Jewish citizens with them? My guest today is George Mason law professor Ilya Soman, whose recent article for Reason magazine entitled The Moral and Strategic Case for Opening Doors to Gaza Refugees makes a compelling case for accepting Palestinian victims of this war as a way to, quote, help Israel win faster, unquote. Professor Soman will share with us how asylum seekers from war-torn areas of the globe share a common condition and desire to, quote, vote with their feet to leave areas of conflict and embrace a better life. We'll discuss how such a program would operate and how such a compassionate act by the U.S. can also serve to assist the safety and security of one of our most important international allies, Israel. When I return, I'll be joined by George Mason Law Professor Ilya Soman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by friend of the podcast and frequent guest, Professor Ilya Soman. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Well, I'm sure, um, you know, our, our, I've, I've given the intro and the title of the show, and I'm sure some of our uh, listeners have concerns, to put it mildly, that we would explore the idea of offering a benevolent hand to Palestinians, a people that seem to regard Israel as a colonial occupier, and Jews, not merely Zionist Jews, but Jews everywhere as their mortal enemies. Uh, so if our listeners can stay with us through our conversation, I hope we can offer some food for thought that they can use as they wish. So, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to go through this slowly, uh, acknowledging first that uh, uh, we, I hope we both acknowledge that uh, uh, we have unequivocal support for Israel and its right to exist, and that we both condemn, you know, as in the harshest terms, the acts of October 7th as the worst atrocity against the Jews since World War II. We're on the same page there. We're going we're gonna to put that line in sand. Are, are we together here? Yes. Okay, good. All right. I mentioned uh, in the introduction that there are more than 2 million uh, Palestinians living in the area, uh, the Gaza Strip, which is about the uh, twice the size of Washington, D.C. So very, very densely populated. Clearly, they're going to be collateral ca casualties as Israel goes on the offensive, as we know they've done this week. Uh, in theory, uh, we're leading the Israeli defense forces. How do our, our missiles, tanks, and soldiers um uh, separate combatants from innocents, uh, just in broad strokes. How, how would we possibly know the difference? 
So I'm not fully expert on how the Israelis or other military forces would do this, but uh, it is an extremely difficult task because, of course, Hamas does use civilians as human shields and has a long history of doing that, both in the present conflict and before. Second, even aside from their deliberate effort to do it, obviously the Hamas terrorists are uh, closely packed in, in the same areas as uh, civilians, and the Hamas uh, forces generally do not wear identifying uniforms. Forms. Uh, so even aside from Hamas's deliberate efforts to uh, intersperse their facilities and troops with, and, and uh, terrorists with civilians, uh, you have a situation where it's extremely difficult to avoid civilian casualties uh, in the fighting against them. Uh, and there have been a substantial number of civilian casualties already, and there will likely be more as the, uh, the fighting continues. All right. So Israel seems to understand this reality very well. Um, uh, it knows that most of the Hamas uh, combatants are in the north. And, and so it's, it's advised uh, Palestinians who want to avoid uh, being victims to uh, relocate to the south of the Gaza Strip. Um, again, this is perhaps public knowledge, but for our listeners, why aren't civilians simply packing up and leaving and moving south? So a lot of civilians have, in fact, packed up and moved south, about 800,000 by various estimates. But there is a couple of issues. One is there are several hundred thousand who, who either cannot or will not uh, move south, either because uh, Hamas is preventing them from doing so, as has happened in some cases, or because they're immobile or they cannot go anywhere. Uh, the second problem is that even in the south of Gaza, there is still some Israeli bombing, because, of course, there are still uh, Hamas terror there. Uh, and if civilians move south, some Hamas uh, people can do so as well. So ultimately, I do not think it is possible to have a hermetic ceiling uh, of North Gaza from South Gaza. In addition, uh, it is also the case uh, that uh, there will be a lot of civilians who, for various reasons, cannot leave the northern part, either because Hamas prevents them, because for understandable reasons they don't want to go, or because there's really no living space for them to go to in the south of Gaza, which is already massively overcrowded, both with people who normally live there, but also with uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees who have already fled from the northern part. So let's give our listeners who aren't familiar with this issue just a little bit of background. Um, we've characterized Hamas as a terrorist organization and the, the guilty for perpetrating the acts of October 7th. But they're also the political leadership of the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, why would political leaders allow their own citizens to be needlessly killed uh, as collateral damage? So I think Hamas's main concern is not with the welfare of their citizens, uh, but with their ideological cause and with, steal and with staying in power. So they are more than willing to uh, use the civilians as human shields. Uh, in addition, their ideological commitments are such that uh, they think civilian deaths are well worth it uh, to achieve their goals of destroying Israel and setting up a radical Islamist dictatorship in its place. Uh, and they know, of course, that if civilians are killed, uh, that hurts uh, the Israelis in the public relations battle across the world. Uh, and so they want to take advantage of that. So on balance, I think it's pretty obvious that Hamas has little, if any, concern with Palestinian civilian casualties. Uh, and in some cases, they even think that benefits them because it makes the Israelis look bad. 
So again, we, you're you're my guest, not for uh, as a historian, but more for your uh, your uh, I guess original thought and your your legal uh, understanding of, of the world. Um, but for the benefit of the listeners, um, I characterize Hamas as the political leadership. They've been such since uh, their election in 2006. Uh, some people characterize the Gaza Strip as being occupied by Israel. Um, who's who's running Gaza? You know, let's say since 2005. In 2005, the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, which they had occupied for 38 years prior to that since the Six-Day War. In 2006, Hamas won legislative elections, though they actually got only 44% of the vote, but in the political, the electoral system that existed, that gave them a legislative majority. It did not give them control over the executive power, but in 2007, they launched an armed coup that expelled their rivals, the Palestinian Authority, and installed Hamas as effectively the sole power in the Gaza Strip, which they have been for 16 years ever since then. They rule by force, they suppress dissent, they kill people who express disagreement uh, and so on. So Hamas has been in charge of the Gaza Strip since that time. The Israelis have, with the help of Egypt, maintained a partial blockade, keeping various uh, goods from coming in that they believe could help Hamas. But in terms of what goes on within the Gaza Strip itself, uh, the Hamas has been in power since 2007, uh, with the exception of some brief periods when there was fighting with Israel, when Israel briefly occupied uh, some parts of the Strip. But then each time the Israeli forces quickly left again. Now, uh, among the many theses of your books and, and your, your thought are uh, people's ability to vote with their feet. Uh, we've got uh, Gaza is a pretty terrible place, we're all told. Um, uh, why uh, or can, in fact, uh, Palestinian uh, civilians travel in and out of Gaza into Israel, either to work or for trade? I is that possible? And if not, why not? So right now, it's almost completely impossible. Before the current round of fighting, it was somewhat possible, but still impossible for the vast majority of people. Uh, there are crossings from uh, it, Gaza into Israel and also into Egypt, but both Israel and Egypt have for the most part kept them closed to almost all migration. There are some exceptions that are granted. In particular, the Israelis had a system of work permits where a few thousand Gazans could work in Israel and then go back. Uh, and on the Egyptian side, there was some very limited access as well. But by and large, Gazans were not allowed to freely emigrate either to Egypt or to Israel or indeed to anywhere else. And that largely explains why relatively few people uh, were had voted with their feet to escape what was this awful situation of poverty and oppression under the rule of the of, of Hamas. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about um, uh, the possible process and logistics of, of potential Palestinian refugees and what we might do with them. Um, but before we do that, I want to lay the groundwork. Why should Americans be sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians? As we said, it's pretty bad. Uh, but uh, they seem to at least acquiesce to the horrible leadership of Hamas. In other words, they they if they're not criminals, they're they seem to be somewhat accessory to the the, the horrible things that Hamas is is doing. Why should Americans, uh, you know, have an open heart towards Palestinians? 
there are both general reasons and specific ones. The general reason is that uh, we should be sympathetic to anybody who lives under horrific poverty and oppression through little or no fault of their own, which certainly applies to the majority of the Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip, about half of which is under the age of 18. I think it's pretty obvious that the children have virtually no responsibility whatsoever for the regime that they live under, both in Gaza and anywhere else in the world. But even with many of the adults, uh, if you look at surveys uh, recently undertaken, the surveys are imperfect for various reasons. But if you look at surveys undertaken of Gaza Palestinian opinion, what you will find is as recently as last summer, uh, uh, more than uh, half of Palestinians in, in surveyed in Gaza said that they thought Hamas should recognize Israel and accept a two-state solution. And a larger percentage than that said they thought that uh, Hamas should at least maintain the ceasefire uh, that had existed. Uh, and we should keep in mind these surveys are imperfect, but if anything, they may underestimate the true level of distaste for Hamas among Gaza Palestinians. Because, of course, if you're a Palestinian living in Gaza and you're responding to a survey, you have to worry that Hamas might find out that you said something they don't like. And if so, they might punish you or even kill you, as they have, in fact, done with various dissenters. So there certainly are Gaza Palestinians who support horrible atrocities or support Hamas in general or have bad views of various kinds. But I don't think uh, we should tar with a broad brush with respect to that. Uh, and we should keep in mind that uh, here as elsewhere, when people live under oppressive regimes, they often have little choice about that situation. And I would add finally on this part of the discussion that uh, we should not condition people's human rights on whether they have good views or not. Uh, we generally don't trust governments to impose such conditioning in other situations and refugee and migration policy should not be an exception. There are also pragmatic reasons related and strategic reasons related to the current conflict with Israel uh, for why we should uh, urge the opening of doors to Gaza refugees, which is that uh, one of the biggest obstacles to Israel's operation in the Gaza Strip is the uh, what we talked about earlier, that civilians are tightly interspersed uh, with Hamas fighters. If there were fewer civilians there, the Israelis would more easily be able to target Hamas. And this is actually one of the reasons why Hamas, in fact, does not want Palestinians uh, to leave uh, the Gaza Strip. They want they, they, they have said people should stay right there. Other supporters of the Palestinian nationalism and radical Islamism in the Arab world also say they do not want to let in Gaza refugees for this very reason. So ironically, uh, Western right-wingers, including here in the United States, who are opposed to uh, opening doors to Gaza refugees, they have the same exact position on this issue as Hamas does. Uh, that doesn't by itself prove it's wrong, but it's some irony to say that these people who claim to be great champions of the struggle against Hamas, and some of whom even oppose having any kind of Palestinian state of any kind, uh, they nonetheless take the exact same position on Hamas, on, on this issue as Hamas does. Indeed, I guess there's a, a very, very clear logic between saying if Hamas wants civilians there taking casualties uh, that to oppose that, that is to say to take away the innocent civilians should theoretically harm Hamas. And in theory, our uh, those who support Israel should be sympathetic to the view that let's see how many civilians we can take off the battlefield. OK, so for those listeners who are still with us, how would Palestinians get out of Gaza? We know on well, uh, we've got a, a roughly a, a long rectangle. On two sides, we have Israel. On one side, we have the Mediterranean. And on the 
Uh, on the Rafa Gate on the south, we have um, Egypt uh, at the sort of entrance to the uh, Sinai Peninsula. How would Palestinians get out? So the simplest and most plausible way is that Egypt should open the Rafah crossing, which you just mentioned, uh, which is currently closed to all but a few people. Like the, the Egypt has opened it to foreign citizens, that its people in the Gaza Strip also have some kind of foreign citizenship, and to a few Palestinians who have been wounded into fighting, but it's closed to virtually everybody else. If Egypt were to open that and say any civilian who wanted to leave can, then a great many would. And after that point, uh, you know, you could decide, you know, would they live in the Arab world? Would they live somewhere in the West or somewhere else? Uh, would they be allowed to stay only temporarily or permanently? All of those questions would arise. But that's the simplest way. In theory, you could also open crossings on the Israeli side. But for a variety of reasons, that's not practical, including that there's active fighting going on in some of those areas between Israel and Hamas. So for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, that's not, at least in the near term, a plausible solution. And similarly, it's unlikely that you could have people picked up by sea and taken out, uh, given that there also there's fighting between the Israeli Navy and uh, they're showing Hamas forces on shore. So the simplest and easiest way would be to open the Rafah crossing. General Sisi, the dictator of Egypt, refuses to do this. He says that's because uh, it would damage the Palestinian national cause to do it because Palestinians might leave and not come back. And that would make it harder to establish a Palestinian state later. Uh, uh, I think uh, in, in almost no other context do does anybody seriously claim the keeping out refugees and keeping them in a horrible war zone and living under a horrible dictatorship that that somehow benefits the refugees themselves. But we particularly should not have sympathy for this argument if, in fact, we don't put the same priority on establishing a Palestinian state as perhaps many in the Arab world do. I think it would not be easy to get uh, the Egyptian dictatorship to change its policy on this, but Egypt is a major recipient of American uh, military and foreign aid. It's one of the three or four biggest. If the U.S. were to start to condition that aid on opening the Rafah crossing, then maybe Egypt would have an incentive to rethink, though I also admit I see no evidence uh, that the Biden administration is all likely to do this anytime soon. Indeed. Uh, again, uh, you anticipated my next question, which is why would Israel do this? Uh, you mentioned earlier that none of the Arab neighbors seem to want to take Palestinian refugees. So uh, whereas uh, sometimes uh, our, our hostility towards Palestinian cause might be seen as somehow um, uh, motivated by racism or something like this, uh, it doesn't seem the, the Arab neighbors want them any more than we do. I, I might, again, I don't want to impugn motives, but it seems like they enjoy having a um, a thorn in Israel's side with these two million Palestinians. Yeah. So I think that is a part of the motive. And the rulers of Egypt and Jordan have explicitly said that the reason why they don't want to take Palestinian refugees, at least the biggest one, uh, is that it would somehow undermine the Palestinian national cause. Uh, to my mind, uh, we should care more about the human rights of people than about some kind of nationalist ideal of having a Palestinian state. I'm not on principle opposed to the idea of a Palestinian state. I think maybe ultimately a two-state solution could be justified. But in the meantime, we should not forcibly keep people in poverty and oppression on the hope that maybe that will somehow in the long run help establish a Palestinian state. 
escape. I would add also that if people are allowed to leave, that does not mean that they should not be allowed to come back. And indeed, the Israelis, for what it's worth, have said they would let people come back uh, to Gaza and the U.S. and other Western nations could hold them to that. Uh, so it's not that I think Palestinians should be required to leave Gaza or that if they do leave, they should be required to never come back. That would be unjust. And I think, if, frankly, it was unjust in 1948-49 when the Israelis did expel some Palestinians forcibly and did not let them come back. But that's not the kind of thing that's being discussed now. All right. So we now have a war in which Israel cannot merely repair the wall and call it a day. Because at the very least, you know, the ceasefire, you know, you, you can't just say that because, uh, you know, tomorrow there might be another invasion where there's 1,500 or so innocent Israelis killed. Um, I mean, the goal for Israel, the stated goal is that they want to once and for all eliminate Hamas uh, and theoretically facilitate some civic civil leadership that uh, serves the needs of residents. Again, uh, an ordinary uh, peace loving uh, um, uh, leadership. Um why do you think there are Palestinians, let's say, who, uh, when the smoke clears, ha will embrace uh, a more moderate or a more, uh, you know, a traditional leadership that does want a two-state solution, does want peace? Um, you know, why do you think they would em embrace these things if, if to date, you know, the, as they say, they've. they've so, 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 so I don't know if they will or not. Um, it remains to be seen what the circumstances are of when the Israelis prevail, if they do succeed in fully prevailing, and what kind of uh, structure is set up in Gaza. I think that the Israelis themselves are not sure exactly how they would do it. Uh, the Western and Arab powers also are not sure exactly how they would handle the situation. I do think uh, that it will be easier to do this. If in the meantime, uh, there have been fewer civilian casualties in Gaza as opposed to more, that may reduce, at least at the margin, the amount of hatred and bitterness that exists. And this is yet another reason to let, uh, you know, let Gaza Palestinians leave uh, and flee to fighting if that's for those who wish to do so. Uh, but I don't claim to have some sort of detailed foolproof plan or any kind of plan for a long-term solution to this conflict. I think things will be better if Hamas is not ruling Gaza anymore than they were before when it was, given what Hamas did and given Hamas's complete rejection of any kind of accommodation with Israel whatsoever. Uh, but uh, it would be a mistake to assume that simply removing Hamas would end this problem forever. There will still be a difficult challenge about figuring out who will rule Gaza on what terms and also how to settle the larger Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which in some ways is more acute on the West Bank than it is with Gaza, because there are many Israelis, uh, including many in the current government, who would like to annex more, most or even all of the West Bank, whereas very few Israelis, uh, only the most extreme right-wingers, would like to annex Gaza. Okay, all right. All right, so let's, uh, let's back away from sort of what the future might look like. Let's talk about the present. Um, you know, we, let's just stipulate there are some uh, Palestinians who would like to see find uh, refugee status elsewhere, or perhaps even asylum. Uh, uh, you and I have talked about the process of asylum or refugee status when we were talking about Ukraine specifically, uh, who want to follow a similar path. What would the U.S. State Department do? I understand that Palestine is in a different category and under a different organization than was the uh, those trying to leave Ukraine. So, How, what's next? So, it, so obviously, what would be next? 
if, if people were allowed to leave, some might not go to the U.S. at all. Some might stay in the Arab world or go to Europe or elsewhere. If, if people were to enter the U.S., and I think Alton would probably be only a small proportion of the total, that even if the U.S. were to freely let them come, that only a small proportion would end up there. Uh, I think it would be difficult to this under the refugee or asylum system, because for legal reasons that we can talk about, most of them probably would not qualify, except perhaps some who had been persecuted by Hamas for religious or political reasons. Uh, but they could qualify on the basis of the same parole process, which has been used for Ukrainians uh, and which has been used also now for citizens of four Latin American nations, uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti. Uh, and that parole process uh, uh, allows the president to grant temporary entry to the U.S. Uh, to foreign citizens who either have an urgent humanitarian need or alternatively it serves the uh, U.S. interest to do so. And here both arguments would be in play. Obviously, being in a war zone and being oppressed by Hamas is an urgent humanitarian need. It's pretty obvious. Uh, and in addition, there would be a public interest in reducing the number of civilians uh, exposed to uh, warfare in Gaza and therefore make it easier for Israel to crush Hamas. So you only need one of these two things to be present. So I think the easiest way for them to be able to enter the U.S. if the administration were inclined to let them do so, which, by the way, at this point, there's no evidence that there is such an inclination. But if there were, the parole process, I think, would be the easiest way to do it. Um, I did some research and found I think there's an exceedingly small number of Palestinians that have been uh, granted uh, refugee status, something like 65 in the last 30 years. So, yeah. you know, it's there so there's a much larger number of Palestinian immigrants who have come to the U.S. in other ways, usually through family reunifications or other things. As I understand it, depending on how you look at the numbers, there's about one to 200,000 Palestinians in the U.S. right now. Uh, most of them have some kind of uh, permanent residency status or the like. You, you stipulated earlier, and I wanted to come back to it, that uh, we don't differentiate uh, how terrible the regime of uh, uh, a refugee comes from. We don't sort of... Uh... Uh, you know, impugn their uh, their character and motives merely because they come from a, a murderous dictatorship. Nevertheless, I think we would have concerns that Palestinians might be uh, arrive radicalized. Is there is there are there provisions when you know uh, security minded Americans are like, okay, I, I want to like these people, I want to take them in, I hope they find a, they fall in love with truth, justice in the American way, but. Uh, you know, would we keep an, an eye on? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about in the past, perhaps from communist countries. You want to make sure they're not spies, or you know, what would we do about um, uh, Palestinian refugees? Would we would we keep an eye so, on them? So I would make three points on this. One is I mentioned before we already have many thousands of Palestinians who have come to the U.S. Uh, and we have data on the incidence of terrorism among that group as we do among. Uh, people, uh, immigrants in general. The my colleagues at the Cato Institute, Alex Navrastek has. Uh, and others, uh, they have done a comprehensive study on all migrants who have come into U.S. from every country from 1975 through last year. And the total number of people killed in the United States in terrorist incidents involving Palestinians uh, since then is three people in that entire 47-year period. This is actually a rate of terrorism that is roughly in the same general ballpark as what we have with native-born Americans. It's not zero. And you can say any death from 
terrorism is a bad thing, but the risk based on this extensive experience over almost 50 years is actually pretty low. The second point that I would make is recall that Hamas has said uh, that they don't want Palestinians to leave and that other Palestinian nationalists and radical Islamists have also said similar things. That suggests that those Palestinians who do leave nonetheless are likely to be disproportionately those who do not like Hamas and do not uh, like these other uh, extreme Palestinian organizations very much either. That does not mean that they're completely free of all prejudices or, or attitudes that we might not like, uh, but it does mean that the incidence of, ra- of terrorist support among them is likely to be pretty low, and the incidence of actual willingness to engage in terrorism lower still, as this experience over the last 50 years shows. Uh, And then finally, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we generally don't trust government to discriminate uh, between people based on their bad attitudes or uh, their their views. Uh, We don't do that domestically, even though it's clear that there's a substantial number of native-born Americans who have horrible attitudes and a variety of issues. Uh, And if we don't uh, trust that the government with that domestically, I think there's good reason uh, not to trust the government on that respect with respect to immigration policy either. And therefore, while it's reasonable to punish people, keep them out, imprison them, if we have evidence that they're plotting acts of terrorism or espionage or the like, I think it is not just to say we're going to forcibly confine you to a lifetime of poverty and oppression or to being threatened with death in a war zone merely because we think maybe you have some bad attitudes and prejudices and the like. We would not accept such a thing in any other context, uh, and immigration should not be an exception to that general principle. Fair enough. And I, I, I did uh, see in your piece uh, the citation about uh, the the paucity of evidence that uh, uh, Palestinians are more inclined towards terrorist acts than anyone else. Um, At least those who come to the U.S. Right. Those who come. Yes. Those who are, who are actively members of the Hamas organization is obviously a different story, but that's not who tends to be likely to come. Fair enough. But again, in the past month, you and I have been treated to um, uh, news uh, reports from all over the world. uh, 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 I say protesters who are advocating for the Palestinian cause. And among the other things uh, they talk about, they're they're not merely saying, boy, let's let's minimize collateral damage. But rather they're saying, you know, uh, free Palestine and, you know, the uh, uh, from the river to the sea. Again, our, our listeners probably know this reference, which is from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, which is effectively all of Israel, their claim is that Israel does not belong to the Jews and the Israelis. They want to essentially eliminate that state. If Western um, thinkers, uh, or I don't know if we call the protesters thinkers, but if there's enough of a movement to, to generate large crowds, um, uh, how is it that Palestinians uh, who leave that region wouldn't share that, that concern and, in a sense, add even more fuel to an already... No. Bizarre fire. I, I think the same points I made earlier apply here. One is uh, those people who support Hamas and similar movements are probably the least likely to try to leave, given that those movements oppose uh, they're doing so. Second, uh, it is wrong and unjust to restrict people's freedom based merely on the fact that they have bad views. It's fine to criticize those views, in some cases stigmatize them, refuse to hire people for certain jobs if they hold those views. It is not right to say because you have some awful views on some issues, uh, you should be confined to poverty and oppression and to a risk of death in a war zone by force. Uh, We readily understand that in other contexts, that principle applies here. Finally, if you're worried about them sort of 
increasing the size of a bad political movement. The total number of people living in Gaza, as you point, as, as you noted yourself earlier, is about 2 million. Probably only a small fraction of them would come to the U.S. even if allowed. So the likelihood that they would somehow significantly affect the size of a domestic American political movement, uh, you know, is infinitesimally small, especially when you remember that about half of those people are children under the age of 18 uh, and children that age rarely, if ever, are effective participants in any kind of movement. So I readily grant if you said, well, 100 million people with horrible views are going to come and they're immediately going to become voters in U.S. elections, then you could have a serious debate over the issue of, you know, would that horribly affect the U.S. political spectrum? If you're talking about maybe some tens of thousands of people, uh, none of whom would be able to vote immediately and half or more of whom would be under the age of 18, uh, I think the risk of, you know, having uh, the U.S. political balance be affected by, you know, some people with bad views, even if every single one of them had awful views, that risk would still be utterly insignificant. Indeed. Uh, yeah, again, I've seen some backlash against Rashid Tlaib, uh, congressman uh, who uh, advocates for the Palestinian cause. There's substantial backlash against some of her rhetoric. And I'll say there's lots of sympathy for Palestine coming from the uh, Ivy Halls of Harvard, which scare me uh, just the same. Yeah. So, so there, there are certainly people who have awful views. Uh, who are not immigrants, but rather native-born American far leftists or far rightists and the like. I think the way to combat that is uh, by you know, criticizing their views back, restricting their access to positions of power and so on, but not by consigning people to poverty, death, and oppression uh, uh, because you know, we don't like their views. Indeed. Okay, so let's just stipulate that we do... Uh, 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 root out Hamas, uh, every last one, and we have what's left are uh, peace-loving or, let's say, civic-minded or um, people who want to live in a, a normal life in the Gaza Strip, and and we find some leadership. Um, would the world, or particularly Israel, be inclined to allow, again, you, you, you're very clear that it's not all of uh, uh, Gazans, a, a small percentage, would those people, of course, be invited back? Is there an incentive to have people who leave then come back. So in my view, they should not be forbidden to come back. Uh, but I also think they should not be required to either. Uh, in that hypothetical, if you look at the past history of refugees from horrible war and oppression, even after the war is over or the bad regime is overthrown, many people cannot or will not come back. That is what happened after World War II with many of the people then known as displaced persons. They stayed in the U.S. or uh, Britain or Canada or elsewhere rather than being forced to go back to uh, Europe. Uh, that is what has happened in you know, subsequent conflicts, even in the best case scenario, uh, life in Gaza is unlikely to be anywhere near and remotely good for some years to come. And it would be unjust to forcibly confine people there. But it would also be wrong to prevent them from returning if indeed that is what they wanted to do. Uh, and uh, you know, Israel should make a commitment that they would not prevent that, and you know, Egypt as well. Uh, and I think the Israeli government has, in fact, been saying that they would not prevent people from, you know, from coming back. I think most Israelis, you know, even right wingers who want to annex the World Bank, most not 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 the, not the World Bank, the West Bank, <laughs> uh, uh, who want to annex the West Bank. Uh, there's little, there's not much desire to annex Gaza. Uh, so. Uh, I think the rule here, as in other situations like it, should be that people should be allowed to return if they want to, but not forced to. 
Indeed. Okay. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. Um, I, I wanted to ask you two final questions. One is, um, I, I can kind of answer it myself, but um, we, we've been encouraged, I think, by the recent Abraham Accords. This is uh, uh, former enemies of the state of Israel, like the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Jordan, I think even Morocco have said, look, you know, enough is enough. Let's, let's normalize relations. Do you think that it's possible that um, the Palestinians will ever uh, sort of find their way towards that that place where uh, they acknowledge Israel's right to exist and 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 just get on with it. It's certainly possible, uh, but obviously it's hard to know whether it will actually happen uh, after this conflict ends. Depending on how it ends, I think both the Israelis and the Palestinians, and also the other Arab states, they will have various decisions to make about how they want to approach the future. And at this point, it's hard to foresee. You know what will happen with that. Uh, maybe the in the best case scenario, maybe the Abraham Accords will proceed. Maybe Saudi Arabia and other additional states will make peace with Israel. And on their side, maybe Israel will throw out some of the more awful elements in the current government and install people who are more willing to uh, you know, be more accommodating on various points, but it's hard to know what will happen uh, with either Israeli or Arab or Palestinian politics in the future. All I can say is that with respect to this issue, letting more people flee uh, and thereby reducing uh, civilian casualties, at least at the margin, will make it easier to make peace in the future. Though I certainly don't claim that just by doing this, we somehow guarantee that there will be a wonderful peace agreement that will make everybody happy. Uh, this issue is difficult and will remain difficult, even if Hamas is completely eliminated, which I hope it will be. But even that is not yet completely guaranteed that that will happen. Unless after listening to our conversation, our, our listeners think this is either a suicide pact or a uh, insanity. Are, are, are your views or have you read after your your piece came out maybe a week and a half ago? Are there other sympathetic voices that are saying the same thing you are? Is there anybody else saying, look, it won't solve this problem. It won't win the war for Israel and won't eliminate Hamas. But this is this is a good step forward towards, uh, you know, a, a humanitarian, kind, compassionate uh, gracious act to uh, extend the Palestinians at least some support for being. So I would be lying if I said there was a huge groundswell of support for this position, but I do think other people have said similar things. Matt Iglesias, the prominent moderate liberal political commentator, has written about this and has said somewhat similar things. My Cato Institute colleague Alex, Alex Narastek has written about the you know the uh, the real, the very well nature of the terrorism risk uh, from this group, and uh, in my piece uh, on the Reason website, I cite public opinion data from uh, Gaza, which shows that uh, Gaza Palestinians are not nearly as supportive of Hamas as some in the West think they are. That data is imperfect, but if anything, it may underestimate the true level of uh, dissatisfaction with Hamas and its policies, because of course, uh, many people who might not like Hamas might be unwilling to tell a pollster that for fear that Hamas might, might find out that they said that and you know punish them in some way. Uh, so yes, this is very much a minority position. I don't expect the Biden administration to take up this idea anytime soon. Nonetheless, I think it is consistent both with general 
libertarian and liberal moral principles that we should espouse. And it would actually be good for the campaign against Hamas uh, to do this. Uh, I think the Israeli government would actually be very happy if the Rafah crossing were open to uh, Palestinians seeking to leave uh, Gaza because that would make it uh, easier for them to prosecute this campaign uh, without worrying about inflicting excessive collateral damage, which could then result in uh, a loss of support for Israel in many countries around the world, as is already to some degree happening uh, because of the collateral damage that has happened already. But I certainly do not claim that you know I have massive support for this. I hold various unpopular views. This is one of them, but unpopular is not the same thing as wrong. Uh, indeed. Well, I I was desperate to approach this very, very complex subject uh, from an original perspective. You are always an original uh, thinker. So uh, it's really a great pleasure to have you on. I'm sure we've uh, uh, intrigued some people and probably irritated people on all sides. Uh, so uh, that's what we want to do. We want to uh, provoke some thought. And I look forward to the emails that I get uh, for people either saying I'm, I'm onto something or you're onto something or we're both crazy. So thank you very much for joining us today on uh, Hubwonk, uh, Ilya. You're always a great guest. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me on. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.